Polycystic ovarian syndrome was first described as a clinical syndrome of obesity, hirsutism, and oligomenorrhea. We now know that it can be associated with androgen excess and insulin resistance. How can this knowledge be used in clinical practice? You're listening to ReachMD, channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Michael Benson, your host. Our guest today is Dr. Leanne Spiroff. He is a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Oregon Health and Sciences University in Portland. His book, Clinical Gynecologic Endocrinology and Infertility, has now been published in its seventh edition. He has served as department chair of obstetrics and gynecology at both the Oregon Health and Sciences University as well as Case Western Reserve University. So before we talk about insulin resistance and polycystic ovarian syndrome, can you tell us a little bit about the current definition of polycystic ovarian syndrome? Therein is a problem. For decades, there's been confusion over the definition. I'm always reminded of E. Stuart Potter when he was sitting on the Supreme Court hearing a case of pornography. And he said, I can't define pornography, but I sure recognize it when I see it. I think the average clinician recognizes PCO when he sees it. You have an overweight woman who has three periods a year, some hair on her chin, and an infertility problem diagnosis is made. I think the confusion comes from the fact that there are many causes of PCO. I've for years taught that the simple approach to this clinical problem is to view the polycystic ovary as the result of not ovulating. And if you don't ovulate long enough, you develop the PCO ovary. Therefore, because there are many causes of not ovulating, there are many causes of polycystic ovaries. There currently is a controversy between Americans and Europeans on the role of ultrasonography. The Europeans believe that if you have a typical PCO picture on ultrasound, that's diagnostic. We don't believe that, and we don't believe it for good reason. 25% of normally ovulating women have the PCO picture on ultrasound. 14% of women on oral contraceptives have the PCO picture on ultrasound. It's not specific, and therefore, it's not diagnostic. It's best to view PCO as this huge spectrum of women of multiple causes. Now, insulin resistance is one of the causes, and to be sure, it represents a pretty big segment of that broad spectrum, but it's only one cause and one segment of the whole picture. So insulin resistance is a cause of, not a result of, polycystic ovaries. Is that correct? That's correct and the polycystic ovaries are the result of specific causes. The polycystic ovaries result in certain things like elevated androgens, but it's part of the difficulty people have had with definition is they keep thinking the polycystic ovary is causing this and causing that. It's the other way around. PCO is the result of something, not ovulating. What about lab tests for uh, polycystic ovaries? What about the woman who has got hirsutism three periods a year but isn't obese? Are there any confirmatory lab tests? The lab tests are dictated by the clinical presentations. There is no lab test that is definitive for PCO. For example, for a time, there, it was popular to measure the FSH-LH ratio. It's useless. So what you do is a certain minimal number of lab tests to rule out specific causes, such as a prolactin, to find the elevated prolactin that is causing anovulation, measuring 17-hydroxyprogesterone to rule out an adrenal cause, measuring testosterone to rule out an ovarian tumor. 
so it's it's a very small number of tests that are required. And actually, most of those tests are negative because those conditions you just named are only a small minority of causes. Correct. So let's talk about the mechanism of insulin resistance. How is insulin resistance result in anovulation? Well, first of all, it was somewhat of a revelation when it was discovered that a lot of PCO women had insulin resistance. Let's compare for a moment normal weight women who are anovulatory with polycystic ovaries compared to overweight women who are anovulatory with polycystic ovaries. Some normal weight women will be insulin resistant. Most overweight women will be insulin resistant. And that, remember that just being overweight produces insulin resistance. So the overall, for example, there's a Spanish study that found that about 28% of overweight women had insulin resistance compared to about 5% of anovulatory polycystic women who are normal weight. So there's a difference. But the clinical lesson there is that even normal weight women can be insulin resistant. Well, how is that possible? Why is it that some overweight women with PCO and ovulation are not insulin resistant. Why is it that some normal weight women with PCO and anovulation are insulin resistant? And the answer is genetics. There is an inherited susceptibility to insulin resistance. It appears to be an autosomal dominant, and one of the new obligations we have is to understand that this problem is present in siblings males as well, and therefore they carry with it the increased risk of early onset type 2 diabetes. So we have an important new obligation in terms of family counseling. The insulin resistance is due to an insulin receptor problem. In normal individuals, when insulin binds to the insulin receptor, there's a process called autophosphorylation, and the amino acid on the receptor that's phosphorylated is tyrosine. That step is required for activation of the receptor to do its job to end up producing glucose transport. These individuals who have the inherited problem when insulin binds to the receptor, instead of phosphorylation taking place on tyrosine, it takes place on serine, a different amino acid. And when that happens, the function of the receptor is impaired, glucose transport decreases. And it turns out that that phosphorylation also occurs in enzymes in the adrenal and ovary that increase steroidogenesis. And therefore, the woman whose PCO anovulatory overweight with the highest insulin resistance is also the woman with the highest testosterone levels. If you have just joined us, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. And my guest is Dr. Leanne Spiroff, professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Oregon Health and Sciences University in Portland. We are discussing insulin resistance encountered in women with polycystic ovaries. So if I understand you correctly, a common genetic mechanism that results in insulin resistance also results in dysfunctional steroid production, which results in anovulation. Is that correct? Well, it's hard to know what role the dysfunctional steroidogenesis plays in the, in the anovulation or whether the glucose transportation and insulin resistance did it, which comes first. That's hard to know. But I think it's fair to say that when you develop insulin resistance to a sufficient degree, 
then the normal process of ovulation is impaired and you develop the typical PCON ovulatory state with increased male hormone production. Now, before we go on and talk a little bit more about perhaps the treatment of this insulin resistance, can you tell our audience what diagnostic tests are used for detecting insulin resistance in uh, clinical practice? That's a very important thing to talk about because there are a lot of misconceptions and inappropriate use of the laboratory. The fundamental problem is that the measurement of insulin is insensitive plus a lot of variability. Therefore, measuring a fasting insulin will not be sufficient. Therefore, it became popular for a while to measure the fasting glucose insulin ratio. And then we discovered that too was incredibly variable and not reliable. So unfortunately, to be accurate, you have to do a two-hour glucose challenge with 75 grams of glucose. And at two hours, you measure both the glucose response and the insulin response. Individuals who have a two-hour insulin greater than 100 have insulin resistance. And that's the most accurate thing to do. Now it becomes a process of questioning which patients need to go to that extreme. And you can make the argument that every patient who presents with anovulation and PCO should have it because hyperinsulinemia carries with it the prospect of early diabetes and cardiovascular disease as well. On the other hand, I think you can assume that every overweight woman who is typical PCO, anovulatory, the odds are great that woman will be insulin resistant. And so a lot of times in the clinic, we just move right on to treatment and skip the two-hour glucose. If you really want to be compulsive about it, no one would argue about doing this on any patient who presents with PCO and ovulation, and certainly the woman who has evidence of increased male hormones. With the uh, two-hour challenge, you also mentioned measuring a glucose. How does a glucose, if the insulin is over 100, you have your diagnosis, what does a glucose contribute? Well, because these patients have such a high incidence of early onset type 2 diabetes, you're also interested in have they reached that point. And so you're looking for anything over 140 at two hours as an indication of impaired glucose tolerance. Oh, I see. And how would you treat these women with insulin resistance? Well, that's also a problem. First of all, it is quite apparent that if you lose weight, the response is remarkable. And what's amazing is how little weight it takes. If you lose 10% of your body weight, so if you weigh 200 pounds, we're talking about 20 pounds, a huge number of women who lose 10% of their body weight will start ovulating. Here's the difficulty with that. We don't know how long it lasts. If you went from 200 to 180 pounds and started ovulating, would a new set point be established? And would you gradually move back into the anovulatory insulin resistant state? And that's because a large number of these patients haven't been followed to determine that. And then, of course, we also have the problem that patients and doctors are not very good at weight loss and certainly at not sustaining it. So there's no doubt that the, that the simplest and at the same time the most difficult thing to do is to encourage weight loss because it, it can have a major impact. Now, for those patients who want to get pregnant, it has been a little bit controversial over the last five years. Should we use the old standby clomiphene, 
which works in the brain to increase FSH levels, to stimulate ovarian follicular growth and ovulation? Or should we use a diabetic drug? And the diabetic drugs include metformin and the glitazones. The glitazones have fallen out of dis disfavor. Number one, you have to monitor liver enzymes. Number two, the recent controversy over cardiovascular disease. So we're left with metformin. And there's no doubt that the response to metformin is quite good. Patients resume ovulating, insulin resistance is decreased, and many of these patients will get pregnant. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Leon Spiroff, Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Oregon Health and Sciences University in Portland. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions through our website at reachmd.com, which now features our entire medical show library in on-demand podcasts. Be safe. Be informed. Thank you for listening.